Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wall Street. I went to Wall Street to get seriously rich, but I didn't get rich. Hollywood Boulevard. I went to Hollywood to be a movie mogul. I didn't become a movie mogul. Washington, D.C. The president and Mrs. Ford have invited us down to Palm Springs. He's been but there. I love the entertainment business. Done and that. Being hired by a company called Carol Co. Pictures. And that. The night before Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. And just about everything else you can imagine. I thought of myself as somebody who was a double agent. He knew a lot of famous My people. experience with Orson Welles. How can you possibly? We hang out with that low-life Frank Sinatra. And now he's As a talking. Result of that, I was invited to some fancy dinner. This is the podcast. Who the f- is Roger Smith? But my real goal was to have an interesting life surrounded by interesting people, and at that, I succeeded beyond my expectations. On this episode, Roger sits down with Robert Redford to discuss the possibility of, yes, a film festival. Maybe in Park City, maybe close to Sundance. I wonder what they ended up calling it. And what Redford thinks of it today. I would be very, very comfortable hazarding a more than a guess that he's horrified by what happened. It was exactly what he didn't want. But first, a leap of faith. The great Mikhail Baryshnikov and Roger talk about the true definition of the word amateur. I have to admit, I didn't know what it really means either. Sometime around 1975, I was dating a lovely girl named Dina Kay, and she was indeed Danny Kay and Sylvia Fine's daughter. And she was just sweet, lovely, terrific kid. And one night she wanted to give a dinner party. She had a very nice, not, not very fancy, but very nice apartment on the Upper West Side. And we talked about the guest list, and she, of course, knew all these famous people that I, unlike me, but I was there to help her prepare the food and get things ready, as well as be a guest. And then while we were getting the dinner prepared, the first guest arrives. It's Misha Barishnikov, who was a friend of, of Dina's. And we are making polite conversation when uh, Barishnikov says to me, have you ever had Dina's father's cooking? Now, Danny Kay, people who remember him may remember, was a brilliant, wonderful, trained, self-trained Chinese chef. He created his Chinese dinners were famous in Hollywood for attracting, you know, all the, all the people you might think they would and being particularly good. So when Mr. Barishnikov said to me, have you ever had her father's cooking? I said, no, but I understand it is as good as amateur cooking gets. 
Barishnikov goes, amateur? You dare call Danny Kaye's cooking amateur? And I said, well, Mr. Barishnikov, I meant it according to its original Latin root meaning, which is an amateur is someone who does something for love, not for money. Well, Barishnikov, I guess in his entire, at that point, fairly young professional life, but already at the pinnacle of success, had always used the word amateur as the ultimate put-down, professional with what you should be. But he was delighted with this information, and he proceeded, as each guest arrived, he would literally buttonhole them and says, do you know what amateur means? So it was so cute the way he was so taken with this little bit of knowledge. It was probably about 30 years later that I was at a very lovely lunch in Greenwich, Connecticut, and Mr. Barishnikov was one of the guests, and I went up, reintroduced myself, and reminded him of our meeting over the subject of the meaning of amateur. And he said, oh, I remember it so well. I was so delighted to learn that. I always tell people, you don't know what amateur really means. Robert Redford was an amateur film festival organizer when he dreamt up Sundance. Roger remembers the early days and how the festival has gotten, what would you say, a little too popular? I would go further and say it's been prostituted. Most people are familiar with the Sundance Film Festival, which takes place every winter when COVID doesn't prevent it, in Park City, Utah. And the film festival was the successor to the Sundance Institute, which Robert Redford had underwritten and created as a workshop for people in every aspect of film, whether they were actors, producers, directors. Uh, and he had what he called resources, which were industry people who came there and then met with aspiring young writers, directors, actors, etc. And I had gotten to know him through my role at Warner, not well, but briefly, and he invited me to be a resource to come there. And my role was to tell people about how the business of the film business worked. Turns out they weren't particularly interested in that. They were in this, except about how to get a job. That they were very interested in. But it was on his Sundance Ranch, which was quite far from Park City. Beautiful thing in the, I think, the Wasatch Mountains, it's called. And this vast ranch, and everybody was put up in lovely bungalows. And it was great fun. I met Bertrand Tavernier there. I met various uh, important film people. And I was sitting with Mr. Redford when he proposed to me, knowing that I had this aspect of a cultural charitable foundation, would we conceivably help him underwrite a film that he wanted to make about a subject that, in this is 81 or something like that, was unknown pretty much, which was the climate change and how pollution aspects were going to destroy the environment. And he needed $250,000 for this. And I went to the head of Warner Brothers, who said, would we spend $250,000 to get in good with Robert Redford? You bet. We had actually had an unfortunate dealing with him when he'd come to us, having made a number of his films for Warner, wanting to do a film called Ordinary People, 
which he was going to, for the first time, himself direct. And if anyone remembers this movie, it had Mary Tyler Moore, and it was a, this wonderful, sensitive film about family crises. But the geniuses at the studio said to him, well, absolutely, we'd, be, we'd love to do it. Of course, you have to star in it. Well, that was exactly what he didn't want. He knew he could get any mixture made if he starred in it. He wanted to direct and strictly do that. And he ended up making it for Paramount. It won several Academy Awards and uh, to our shame. But it established my original relationship. And I said, look, I think we can repair our damaged relationship for a relatively modest $250,000 and make Mr. Redford happy. He was very happy. And I had met with him in California to discuss the thing. And, and, you know, he just presented his ideas. I had no creative input, I promise you. But in any case, the film gets shot. And it's now, I'm going to think, 1982. And it is going to be presented at the Kennedy Center in a special evening with Reagan involved and, and George Stevens again. And so a group of us, myself, three or four other Warner executives and Robert Redford fly down to Washington to have this opening gala night. And as we're on the Warner Gulfstream jet, Robert Redford turns to the group of us and says, has it occurred to anyone to wonder why to present a film about how we're spoiling the environment and, and not concerning ourselves with damage we're doing to the climate that we got here by taking a limousine to a helicopter and getting on the helicopter and going to the airport and getting on a private jet. I said, you know, Bob, those are the little anomalies of life you just have to learn to live with. When I was sitting at the Sundance Institute at his desk talking to him, I was exercising one of the most important talents you learn in business, how to read upside down. And I see that on his desk is Robert Redford's Form 1040 tax return. And I try to see what I can see, and I can't see any of the numbers, but I do see there's a place where it says occupation. And it said farmer. As I had said, Sundance began as a film industry institute and training sessions for aspiring people in various aspects of filmmaking. There was never a thought of a festival, but that became something that people wanted to see happen. Redford was very lukewarm about that. He, did, he saw that as a kind of commercialization of what he was doing and not thrilled by the idea, but it ended up getting a life of its own. And when, when it originally began, they couldn't do it at Redford Sundance Ranch. There was no place to host all the people. But it was decided it would take place about, I think, about 100 miles away in Park City, which is where it has now been going on for close to 40 years. But over those years, it went from small, independent films that would otherwise probably not have gotten attention from the industry documentaries, as, as personal films, etc., low-budget films, to, I think, last year, there was 3,000, or the last year before, the, before COVID, 3,000 films were submitted to be seen there because it became the marketplace where 
Harvey Weinstein and all the other big industry mockers in the so-called independent thing. The, the studios didn't use Sundance that way, but the independents did to find material, and many, many films were discovered there, and I can come up with a list of them if, with a little research, but there was, uh, it became the most important venue for getting exposure to independent films, which over time became huge bidding contests. There were a number of films which people bought for 10, 20 million dollars that had been made on $800,000 budgets. Many of them ended up never being commercially successful and that whole thing cooled off a little bit, but it really took what had been a pure nonprofit uh, cultural thing and turned it into a Hollywood must-see event where every agent was there. I went one year when this was in full swing and it was just endless, endless mockers from Hollywood networking. And also you had to wait online to get into every screening, which was a nuisance. And it, and it was bitter cold. Other than that, it was fine. I would be very, very comfortable hazarding a more than a guess that he's horrified by what happened. It was exactly what he didn't want. And I think would imagine that he's had virtually nothing to do with it for many years. The original person who managed it was a, 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 a kind of uh, acolyte of his, and his, I want to say Bart something, I can't come up with his name, but was somebody who wanted to do the festival. But again, it was because it was a way to give a showcase for films that were otherwise being overlooked, not a way to take all of the hot shots from Hollywood and give them a uh, five days in the mountains hobnobbing with each other. When the first idea of making a film festival called Sundance was brought up, Redford was openly opposed. He thought he saw it as, as commercialization of what had been to him a somewhat pure nonprofit thing that was to help filmmakers learn their craft, not uh, he didn't want to see it become what it became, which was a star-studded Hollywood publicity event. And I think my own opinion, I don't think he attended any the film festival after the first year or two. I think he simply had nothing further to do with it, saw that it had gotten out of control, but that it also, it did serve a useful purpose for the industry for so-called independent films, but these were not necessarily low-budget personal films. These were now five, six, seven, eight, nine million dollar films that were simply one level below what studios would usually consider. But some very fine films came out of the process. That's not to be denied. But Redford himself did not see this as something that he wanted to be particularly involved with. And to my knowledge, he has not had anything to do with it for many, many years. He wasn't opposed to commercializing the Sundance name. There was a catalog of merchandise with blankets and, and Western gear and things like that that he saw with the Sundance name. But there is more than one festival for every weekend in the calendar somewhere in the world. And it's just unbelievable how these have proliferated. And so when it was originally proposed, that was not the case. And he was, as I say, 
It wasn't something he particularly cared about or wanted to be involved in, but he didn't thwart it. He said, okay, he allowed the Sundance name to be used, which was his property. He was, I would say, exactly what anyone who has watched his films over the years would imagine. Down to earth, casual, charming, funny, and you were aware that you were in the presence of this incredible star. He had star quality, but without any of the unpleasant aspects of that. He was, he was a really regular guy, but you were certainly aware that this was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood and a, a man of uh, such incredible charm and good looks. That's a large part of his star quality. If none of his stories were about you, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Who the fuck is Roger Smith is recorded in an undisclosed bunker somewhere on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. All opinions are Mr. Smith's own, but everything he says happened because he was there. Bill Bergoli's our producer and editor. I'm Bill McCuddy. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric cast. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electric Cast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Ravelson. We're the founders of Electric Cast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electric Cast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast.